Welcome to the latest episode of El Paso Talks, where the voices of El Paso are heard. Now let's welcome today's host. Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Unreaded with Claudia Rodriguez. I am your host, Claudia. So this week I want to try something a little bit different. Um, normally I write down all of my thoughts and I go ahead and, and do my podcast based off of those thoughts, but I want to see if I can try and freestyle a little bit. Um, a lot of things happened this week. I know I'm sending this podcast a little bit later in the week, a little bit later than usual, but it's because so much happened this week. So let's begin. First of all, I want to start off by talking about um, the Biden border crisis um, testimonial Senate hearing, I, I'm sorry, con- congressional hearing that happened earlier this week where um, there was multiple witnesses invited to testify in front of Congress and Veronica Escobar invited Judge Samaniego and so I don't know if you all saw that whole testimony, it was about three hours long but it was pretty interesting. Um, multiple members of Congress were able to question the witnesses, um, Dr. Uh, sorry, Judge Samaniego was one of those witnesses and so some of the questions that were asked about him or even just hearing his opening statements, they were kind of appalling. Um, I know that he was, he one of the many things that he said that, by the way, was secondhand embarrassment just listening to the man. Um, one of the things that he talked about was saying that we don't have a crisis, that we did not have a crisis, it was all made up, and you know how beautifully and coordinated the federal government and the county were. Um, in being able to execute this whole migrant crisis. Now, the problem I have with that is that, you know, all of this happened while I was on city council, and I can tell you from first-hand knowledge that the county didn't have to do much because the city was the one that carried the majority of the weight. So what does that mean? Well, the city is pretty much 90%, the city of El Paso makes up 90% of the county. So that means that 10% are mixed, is made up by the rest of the city. So like Socorro, Benton, Tornillo, Clint, um, San Elisario, all of those other little cities make up that 10%, but 90% is made up by the city of El Paso. So when all of this was happening, the county refused to help the city out. Mind you, during COVID, they were very quick to step in and say, we have jurisdiction over the city and our power supersedes whatever decisions you all want to make. So in this situation, we could have had a very similar um, situation where the county could have stepped in and said, no, we supersede the city, we're gonna help you all out. But instead decided just to let the city take on all the heavy lifting of the whole operation and basically let the city fund this entire operation um, by the taxpayers, of course, and that's what happened. So. What happened was that the county decided that they weren't going to take on any additional um, work, have you, unless the federal government funded them up front first, which is, in my opinion, a very smart idea. But unfortunately, the city, because all of this was happening in our downtown, in our, in our streets, we could not wait. Um, until for that luxury, right, for the federal government to step in. So that's why the city of El Paso essentially had to step in because, I mean, granted, had the mayor declared a state of emergency, he wouldn't have had to step in at all, but whatever, that's a whole other issue that we've already discussed. Um, 
had the had the city not stepped in, we would have had a lot of a lot of chaos. Like we saw chaos, but this would have been chaos times a million, I think. And the reason for that is because we stepped in and we essentially funded the NGOs. We funded NGOs being non-governmental organizations. We funded um, the whole operation with busing and paying for hotels and for their food. And we used taxpayer money, our general fund money, to pay for all of that. And of course, you know, there was political, there became a political football because, you know, um, the White House asked Lisa not to declare, Veronica Escobar asked Lisa not to declare, and also Judge Samaniego asked Lisa not to declare. So all they had to do was just wait for them to get money and then they began to, quote unquote, to use his word, because this is not even an accurate word, process people. So with that said, what happened was that in El Paso, we have to take on that heavy burden of all of these immigrants from um, Venezuela that were, I'm sorry, I hate to break it to everybody here illegally, um, We and they had no sponsorship. So what that means is they had nobody here in El Paso to be able to, or in the country, I should say, to be able to pay for their hotel and be able to pay for their their departures or their travel or their stays and the accommodations. There was no accommodations being made, so the city of El Paso had to accommodate all of that. So that's when we began to pay for the for the hotels and their food and their travel. And so the county said, no, you know, city, go ahead. You all go ahead and take care of that. We're just going to wait till we're federally funded, upfront money, and also we're only going to take the migrants that are sponsored. So they decided, you know, they're gonna get all of this money up front and that money they're not gonna, I don't know what they use that money for because they were only gonna help people that were already sponsored, that already had their travel and accommodations paid for. And so for the judge to say, oh, we took care of it, it was, there was no emergency, that is a completely false statement. In El Paso, we have been seeing things that we've never seen before. It is unprecedented, and we are a city of migrants. And this chaos, this disorder, has never happened before. We've never had people running across border, the border highway, getting run over, getting killed. We've never had people in our backyards. We've never had people sleeping on our streets. We've never had any of that. And even in the past when we would see migrants staying at some of these hotels, City of El Paso was not paying for that. So this is completely false. It's completely unprecedented. And shame on the judge for going to testify and tell elected officials that there is no chaos, that the border was not open. By the way, we all saw those images of people crossing not at ports of entry, but crossing in between the ports of entry, like getting into lines right downtown, right by the the border highway wall, whatever it is. We saw that, and that was completely illegal. We saw our, our border patrol agents being rushed by a mob of migrants carrying a Venezuelan flag, like, that is the epitome definition of an invasion. When somebody else goes into somebody else's country to their homeland and rushes them with a flag saying, like, we're here, we're staying, that is an invasion. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that, like, okay, we're going to rush the border, 
and we're going to have guns and violence. No, you know, this was a different time. This is a modern era invasion. It's not what historically we have been accustomed to believe, you know, with the whole guns and violence and riots. That, that you know, has happened. It has led to civil war. It has led to revolutions. And But this is a modern-day era type of invasion. The other thing that I found very aggravating from the judge is that he essentially called anybody that disagreed with him and Veronica Escobar about what's going on here in the border, called us racist. Excuse me, sir, I am a first-generation Latina. I am the product of migrants. My grandparents were migrants. My parents were migrants. My husband is a migrant. I hold dual citizenship. I'm proud to do so. I speak Spanish. I am an ESL person. My kids are ESL. I mean, how dare you say because we don't agree with the chaos and the disorder of this whole thing call us racist. All the men and women that serve, that have been trying to protect us, the, our police department that doesn't, did not ask for this, did not ask this because they have plenty of work trying to protect the people of El Paso, they're all Hispanic. And you're saying that they're racist. Our border patrol agents here in El Paso, in the El Paso sector, I want to say 90% are also Hispanic. And you're calling them racist for doing their job. The military, the Texas National Guard that came down to help us, they are also Hispanic. And you're also calling them racist. But everybody was good for the August 3rd tragedy, right, Judge? Like all of our police department, our border patrol agents, all of our first responders, the Texas Guard that came down to help us, they weren't racist then. Or with COVID, when they came into COVID and they helped us also, Texas National Guard was here. There was a state of emergency. Texas National Guard was here in El Paso. Our police departments worked around the clock. Our fire department worked around the clock. They weren't racist then, right? They're only racist when you, they don't agree or when you don't agree with them doing their job. And also with that, that in mind, the word racist, I am so sick and tired of all of the of the Democrats using this word racism to carry their narrative. I mean, you can't keep vilifying this word. You can't keep using it to your convenience. You can't keep doing that because it loses its value. And you know what? What happened on August 3rd, that was a very real racist act. What's happening right now with people wanting to say, no, we want some order in this process because we all went through that order. That's normal. That's following our laws. And we should be demanding that of our federal government. And we should not be demanding more money because it is not our issue to solve. It is completely up to the federal government to legislate and put the proper, the proper channels and listen to the agents, the, what the agents are telling you, because they are your men. They are your men and women on the ground, their boots on the ground that are telling you what they need to be able to solve it. And you know what they're telling you that they need? They need just regular laws that they can apply and that they can that they can follow. That's all they are asking you for. So I would suggest that Judge Samaniego, stay in your lane. Do not speak about something and vilify the people that try to help because that is not okay. Stay in your lane. 
and do not take credit for whatever the city is doing because you never came in, you never asked to help, and it's very easy for you to walk away or walk into this and be the hero of it all when you didn't do anything, sir. So that's my take on that whole congressional hearing on the border, Biden border crisis. Um, and that, with that, I would like to lead into this whole other issue about the arena. So I know one of my, I guess, um, fellow podcasters here on El Paso Talks is um, DMB, I believe is her name, and she did a whole thing about the arena debacle. And so I heard her, and she had, I believe, 10 points on all of those 10 points, and I understand that's her opinion, but ma'am, you are very wrong in your opinion. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I have, again, first-hand knowledge, being on council, having ran a campaign, two campaigns, being elected the first time, and becoming informed and making the right decision for the people of El Paso. Now, whether you agree with that decision or not, you know, that's a whole other issue, but let's stick to the facts. In the first Point that she made she talked about um, something about that the that the language was all wrong right and okay so that's up for debate that's all because of freedom of speech that'll always be up for debate however what she failed to to tell you all is that there was already plenty of litigation the Texas Supreme Court decided that the city of El Paso if they so wish to can build an arena based off of that bond language that doesn't mean I agree with it. It just means that that's the truth. That's the reality of it. If the city of El Paso wanted to build an arena, they can do so. Now, what for me, what I find very ironic is that during this whole process, you know, me going into council and saying, like, I am going to not, I'm going to become informed and not move in or kill it because those were the directions. I was paid to move it or kill it. I was not going to do that to the people of El Paso because whether I like it or not, people of El Paso in 2012 decided that they wanted this project. And it would have been completely irresponsible of me to go in there and say, no, sorry, I'm not going to do whatever you want. I'm not going to follow the will of the people. I'm not going to follow our democracy. And I'm just going to go ahead and do whatever this one person is directing me to do. That would have been wrong. That would have been, again, irresponsible. So what was very in- interesting to me is that, you know, I began to fight for this whole project um, back in 2020 when I was elected, and I said my whole thing was historic preservation. And I have genuine love and affection for historic preservation. I have a background in architecture and historic preservation, and I think that more so than anybody on the council, I was the only one that could carry that 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 water because of my background, because I was walking the walk, I wasn't just talking it. And so I, back in 2020, we began to kind of say, hey council, I began to say, hey council, you know, I understand this project. I understand now that this is the will of the people and we can't just move it or kill it. But can we try and compromise? Because there is a whole other group of people that preserving our history and our culture and, and our buildings, our built environment is very important too. And I think that there is a way to compromise and see how we can go ahead and de- 
deliver something that that the people of El Paso deserve because, you know, again, whether we liked it or not, people voted for this and it's been over 10 years, over 11 years, it's been over a decade and we're still on this whole arena issue. Um, so we we commissioned, we, we began an executive session, we directed our city attorney to go ahead and start negotiation with um, Dr. Gus, Dr. Max Grossman and with J.P. Bryan and saying, how can we bring them to the table so that we can really just like put this behind us, we can really just move forward and again, deliver a great project for the city of El Paso. And one of the things that, that came about it was, okay, well, we need to do a feasibility study. With that feasibility study, I said, that's fine. I will agree to this feasibility study, but there are buildings within the footprint that within that cage, that Duranguito cage, that were severely damaged when the city began to demolish them. Can we go ahead and just, if we have any good faith intentions of saving these buildings, can we put in some real good faith effort towards trying to prevent them from getting any further damage from the weather, from potential fires, and seeing, you know, like, I really had hope that we were going to do that. I said in one of the meetings, no, we're not going to do a Mickey Mouse Town facade thing because I was one of Representative Peter Schwartz, my mayor pro temp at the time, um, ideas that we could just save the facades and integrate them into the building. And I thought that was terrible. That's terrible architecture that does a disservice to our history. And I thought I pushed back on that. So we went ahead and with with the blessing of Dr. Grossman, because at this point I was still telling him everything, um, he said, yes, you know, I, I agree, let's, let's move this forward. And we both agreed that $800,000 for a feasibility study was, was expensive, but you know, he reminded me that that's what it, that's what these type of costs cost, projects cost, studies cost. And I said, okay. So to another point that Ms. DMB made that we didn't hire any local architects, um, to that I say, you know, we here in El Paso have a lot of talent. We have a lot of local architects. Well, unfortunately, we don't have any subject matter architects that can build, that know how to build an arena, okay? And so we went ahead and hired Gensler. Gensler is an architecture firm. Um, they have offices all across the country, and we hired them because they were subject expert matters. I'm sorry. Subject expert, right? Am I saying that right? Okay, you all get it. Um, they're experts in that field and that type of design and those types of studies, but we hired them and they are actually one of the best in the country. And we hired them alongside with a local architect, a local subject matter expert, Miss um, Jennifer Countryman, and she was the historic preservation architect on the board, on the on the whole team. And so it was with her being very sensitive to the local architecture of how we can do this. And also another lie that was being said is that we were gonna do eminent domain. Well, we were barely getting those results back from that study, from that feasibility study. And the public didn't really have an opportunity to learn the full scope of what this, this study was finding. And so 
some of the things that the very quickly the the study was finding was that a um, we couldn't build a 12,000 person arena because we didn't have the money for it. Like quite frankly, we did not have the money. So instead, they came up with this hybrid model that was um, no longer an arena, and in fact, it was a multicultural purpose center. That's what this project was now looking. So it was very important and very interesting to see that even though the, the people were fixated on, this is gonna be an arena, an arena, no, it came back to its true intent of being an MPC, a multi-purpose um, center. And so it would have respected the architecture, would have respected the built environment, it would have stayed within budget, it was a great compromise. And I think the people of El Paso, had they been given the opportunity, they would have really appreciated that project because it would have respected the will of the people. And we never want to get into that, that really dangerous area where um, we are electing officials because I, I didn't vote for something and I didn't like that and therefore I want them to change the will of my fellow citizens. That's a really dangerous situation that our new elected officials have put us in because back in November, again, a project that I was, multiple projects that I didn't agree in the, the bond for streets, for the green whatever and the, the climate whatever that was and the quality of life, I didn't agree with all of those initiatives and I didn't support them and I didn't vote for all of them. But it would be very irresponsible for this council to go in and say, you know what, we don't like them so we're gonna go ahead and vote against them and take them off the books because then people cannot trust us. You break, you break public trust. And so what, there was just so much that, that is going on. I think that council, the new, newly elected officials, they went in and, and they went in with that same mandate that I had gone in the original, like move it or kill it. And you can see by the campaign finance reports where, um, for example, Art Fierro was financed, I believe, I wanna say off the top of my head, $16,000. That was the majority of his campaign was financed by J.P. Bryan, and the other majority came from Oscar Leister that also gave him close to $9,000. And you see here that, that it was those types of donations are with intent, right? The intent of one for for Seattle to move it or kill it, which he did. And, and I just, you know, I laugh now. It actually breaks my heart to hear the man speak about historic preservation because the man has no clue what historic preservation is, like none, zero. He was just spewing the talking points that his handler told him to spew, to, to talk because he needed to, he needed, he, that's what he needed. He paid him to do that. Like that's just the corrupt reality of it. And then the second one, you know, Oscar Leister giving him $9,000, that'll be a different topic for another day, but that one is also very bad, and, and I'll explain why later. But, you know, to, to Ms. DMB's um, point, or to her, to address her, her concerns, you know, there was a lot of stuff that she said on there that were not true. You know, certificates of obligation, um, Thankfully, there was a, a new law passed by Governor Greg Abbott, I believe, last in the last legislative session, which was last year, saying that you can no longer use certificates of obligation for for quality of life projects. So that would have been a quality of life project that they wouldn't have been able to to fund. Which is why, again, the research from the from the study showed that they only had 153 million dollars, and 
they were coming up with a budget of $144 million to restore all the buildings, be able to build the arena, and that was that was that was a really great result from that study actually. And me myself being on, on city council, I never believed in certificates of obligation. I never supported certificates of obligation because I believe that voters should be able to when you come up when you spend that much amount of money, um, there needs to be you need to go back to the voters and ask them, hey, do you want to spend this money on this type of project? Because it is a lot of money and it's not everyone necessarily agrees with that, right? And they've been abused. Certificates of obligation have absolutely been abused. They have, um, their, their purpose, they have outserved their purpose. And I mean, there's still reason, like for example, just an example, like when we had that huge storm, I believe it was last year, that created a lot of destruction. Well, and if we wouldn't have had the money in the budget, which thankfully we did have the money in our budget, or all these sinkholes that we're seeing, um, if we wouldn't have had the money in the budget to fix all that, then that would have been a reason to say, okay, we need to issue a certificate of obligation because we can't have our freeway underwater or broke our bridges broken in half and I mean again a lot of these structures depend right because like the freeway I-10 and I didn't mean to spread misinformation that belongs to the state of Texas so that would have been the state of Texas but like some of the sinkholes that we've been seeing um having been able to respond to them it is due because the city does have a healthy budget at the time we do have rainy day funds we have about 90 million dollars saved in our rainy day funds and what that means is that if anything ever happens, you know, we can operate for 90 days without having to issue certificates of obligation. We could operate for 90 days without any federal or state assistance. And that is a great thing. That is our savings account. And we are doing a great job at that. And I know there was many other points that she made. Um, I can't, those were the main ones that I could remember off the top of my head, but I can tell you that a lot of them, it, they're just based on opinion. Um, and I'm happy to address them and I'm happy to, to have a conversation with her if she ever so pleases. You know, I think that that's how we not only come up to compromise or resolution, but that's how we really put out in the public factual things is just by speaking and showing receipts. And, and I'm happy to show those receipts as well. So with that said, I hope everybody had a great day. I know that this was a 26 minute podcast, but I am done. I will see you all next week with my other episode, my episode for next week. I have no idea what I'm going to do, but I hope you all tune in. Um, listen in. Leave me some comments. I've answered comments in the past in the back. I'm sorry. In the past, I have answered some of your comments that you all leave. And and please, just really, like, let's, let's be grown-ups about all this. Let's listen to each other. And... Whatever it is you want to say to me, I don't care. I'll address it. And it's not that I don't care because I have no disregard or I have disregard for you. I just, it's okay. Like, it's okay. We can talk. So until next week, have a good day, everybody. This has been Unmuted with Claudia, where we discuss the most important issues facing our community. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you love my podcast, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, and review me on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Don't forget to let me know what topics you would like for me to cover in future episodes. Drop me a line on claudia at claudiafoelpaso.com. See you in my next episode.
This has been El Paso Talks, a podcast about El Paso delivered to you by the voices of your neighbors, your friends, your family, and even yourself. If you haven't already, like, subscribe and rate our podcast. El Paso Talks is produced by El Paso News. The opinions expressed are those of the individual delivering the episode and may not necessarily represent the views of El Paso News or the other podcasters on El Paso Talks. Find us at elpasonews.org. See you in the next episode.